ready to keep you company wherever you are. Card Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. It's time for another episode of The Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. Here's what we're chatting about today. Taking a load off, it seems there's finally a bit of hope on the horizon when it comes to load shedding. A dramatic shake-up in the form of the state enterprises bill. In our country, I'm not sure that we are yet ready for such an expansive idea to happen. And I think it's going to take quite a while for that bill to get through. Unlikely to see it pass this year. Then a case of implausible deniability. Marcus Eusters' surprising defense. And we look at the bright side as we end things off with some much-needed good vibes. Let's get into it. Welcome to a brand new episode of The Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche, where we help you digest the latest headlines. Joining us today is Daily Maverick Associate Editor, Feriel Hafiji. Feriel, it's been far too long. How are you? Much too long, Lizanne. Lovely to be with you again. I want us to kick things off with all things load shedding, because I think a lot of us have been talking about that in recent days and weeks. And Electricity Minister Jose Enzo Ramokopa has been surprisingly optimistic in recent days about our energy outlook. In the short term, he's saying we'll have lower stages of load shedding for the next couple of weeks. Thankfully, now that diesel reserves have finally come back. But then he also said they see far less load shedding by the end of 2024. You were at the most recent press briefings. And what do you make of this very rosy outlook? So I know that we're battered by load shedding. And when we ask our audience at the Daily Maverick, they give us chapter and verse of how load shedding, particularly at stage six, really disrupts your life, your personal economy, your business, everything substantially. But I do see room for optimism. I also follow very carefully a few people and I trust what they say. So the one is Sim Chabalala, who's the CEO of Standard Bank. And he said in an interview recently that he sees that by 2026, load shedding will be a thing of the past that would have brought on so much new energy to the grid that we won't have load shedding anymore. Back home, if you also listen to James McKay, the head of the Energy Council of South Africa, a similar view. Now, I'd listen quite carefully to what he says because he's right in there. He heads the Energy Council of South Africa, and they're engaged deeply in trying to fix the power stations, which are the most troublesome, particularly Kusile and I think also Kuburg. So I do Mm. think that there is reason for optimism. I'm Mm. much more optimistic because South Africans have installed I think it's by now about 4,700 megawatts of solar. Um, And that's huge. I think that's what's really going to take the burden of load shedding away. That is massive. Mm. I mean, and and this kind of feeds into my next question, just in in terms of green energy. You know, South Africa still has international carbon footprint targets to meet, which puts additional strain on government to decommission some of the coal-fired power stations. So how do you see government balancing these two? 
two things. So South Africa has decided that energy security comes before the decommissioning of the big coal-fired power stations, which are responsible for the worst, obviously, of our emissions, especially in Mpumalanga. So it's decided to slow the pace of the decommissioning of power stations, and it's requested to be excused from how quickly we will make our nationally determined contribution to cutting our carbon content. That means it's going to take a little bit longer, but those talks are in motion at the moment. Obviously, environmentalists are saying that this is not good news because we are one of the world's highest emitters of carbon, although the developing world much less than the industrialized world. You've seen, though, that countries do secure their energy security first before they start becoming massive influences of cutting carbon. For example, when the Ukraine war started, you saw many countries in Europe restart their coal-fired power stations. Mm. And then just a final question on this topic is there's also been a lot of focus on maintenance with ESCOM really hammering on this in the last couple of months. But do you have any insights into plans around adding new capacity to the grid? Because that is essentially what is most needed in the long term. Absolutely. So this was a very good week on that front. NERSA, which is the electricity regulator, it gave ESCOM the final two licenses it needed to make operational the National Transmission Company. This is part of ESCOM's restructuring internally into the different divisions. And now that that's happened, we'll begin to see a proper energy market becoming more clear. This is where all the people who started private energy production, largely of renewable forms of energy, are able to wheel this onto the grid because this transmission company now establishes the methods, the trading methods by which that can happen. I think we're about five years away from seeing that actually becoming operational, but this has been a very big week in the liberalization of the energy market, which should see uh, cheap prices and a more steady supply of electricity for the medium term. ESCOM, Transnet, the SABC, Denel, SAA, the SA Post Office. The list of failing state-owned enterprises is a long one. Now, a newly gazetted bill looks to bring some much-needed stability to these floundering entities. But is it simply more of the same, or can the National State Enterprises Bill deliver on government's lofty promises? Speaking of troublesome state-owned enterprises, I want us to get into the National State Enterprises Bill, which was recently gazetted, and it's created quite a buzz. The idea, in very simple terms, is to scrap the Department of Public Enterprises and instead then have a holding company to supervise various SOEs, which are yet to be determined. But here's my question, and I know Daily Maverick had the same question. Why get another SOE to manage other SOEs? Uh, So what's the plan here? (laughs) This is something that government's been looking at for the longest time. The Southeast Asian giant economies, those of Singapore, Thailand, and I think the Philippines or Indonesia, they run their state-owned enterprise sector this way. It's usually centrally held in a company, and that allows for public-private participation in this vital part of developing countries 
circulatory economies. It's been very, very successful in Singapore with Temasek, also successful in, in other countries. And those countries have really had significant growth rates as well as good development statistics. In our country, I'm not sure that we are yet ready for such an expansive idea to happen. And I think it's going to take quite a while for that bill to get through. Unlikely to see it pass this year. Mm. Gordon has insisted that this new holding company yes. would limit political interference, which sounds really great. But how is that really possible if the president and a designated cabinet minister will be the ones making these appointments? Technically, it, it I mean, our story of state capture happened when politicians, mostly the former president, took a hand in putting in place the boards at ESCOM mm. and Transnet to a lesser extent at Denel. And from there, that's how the major extraction happened. This time, they're saying that while the, the minister and the president will have, I I think the majority votes on that board, um, what you do have is a countervailing force of independent directors. And the way that that company is created is at arm's length from government. Again, we, we've seen the problems at the public investment corporation. So these things are really the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And we don't have a good reputation with doing so at all. Also next year, Lizanne, we have an election and it's very likely that we could end up with a coalition government, if not nationally, then certainly provincially. So I think all these big ideas pretty much on hold until our political direction clarifies. Definitely, because as you've also said, we have a very tarnished record. In a perfect world, the bill in its current form would be welcomed, I think, and, and no one would really kick against it. I think some healthy pessimism is warranted, but I do believe this is a move in the right direction. It shows that government is trying to really change the way it's been doing things for the past two decades. And I really hope that we see something come from that. But as you've said, you know, we will only start seeing results after the elections next year. In January this year, the Joburg Stock Exchange, or JSE, fined former Steinhoff CEO Marcus Euster 15 million rands for releasing financial statements that were incorrect and misleading, as well as issuing fictitious invoices that falsely inflated Steinhoff's income. Euster immediately challenged the JSE's decision, and the tribunal to hear his argument kicked off last week. And while no one expected much new info to come from the tribunal, Euster's legal defense did surprise many. Our next story had me rolling my eyes, I'll be honest. <laughs> Former Steinhoff CEO Marcus Euster, in arguments brought before a tribunal last week, essentially says he had no idea about the accounting irregularities at Steinhoff. He simply trusted what his colleagues were telling him. I read a tweet where someone actually said he's confusing irregularities with regularities. <laughs> so uh, what, what was your initial response when you heard of his incompetency defense. Gobsmacked. You know, everybody who knows Steinhoff, and I think now most of us have an intimate acquaintance with how it worked. He was the guy. Hey, nothing happened mm. without Marcus, as as he's called. He wasn't your um, hands-off CEO who let his executive team run things. He was the like the Uber Alice of, of Steinhoff. He was the, the mastermind behind the creation of, of what's rapidly turning out to be a very expensive Ponzi scheme. And obviously, he's, he's now desperate and he's adopting the defense of 
ignorance. I don't think it's going to work. It's also interesting to me that the NPA is steadily building the case against him. So I think it's going to be tough years for, for Mr. Yuster, who has escaped any kind of culpability for what happened at Steinhoff. Lots of people, I think, are looking towards um, not only the tribunal hearing, but the prosecution. And I think from that, you'll see many civil suits flowing against him personally. Mm. In terms of just, and I know, like, I'm no legal expert, yes. um, but just in terms of putting forward this what I call the incompetency defense. Clearly, it doesn't absolve him of responsibility because, I mean, if you just go and look at the JSC listing requirements, there is no real separation regardless of your involvement. You're the ultimate responsible party. But I'm just wondering what his end game is here. I don't know. I think he's he's building up. He's telling us what his defense is going to be when he is prosecuted here. Because remember, we've seen prosecutions start in Germany, but Yes. But not here. It's showing an indication of how he is going to try and disperse blame into his executive. But I really don't think that it's going to hold water at all because it is clear, for example, in the German prosecution that some of the executives there had um, turned state or it's clear that they had begun to provide some evidence, which I think will make for a pretty clear picture when that case uh, starts in South Africa. Yeah. It's the peace mission that was destined for failure. So many of us thought back in June when President Cyril Ramaphosa, alongside other African leaders, facilitated peace talks between Ukraine and Russia. But now claims are being made that these negotiations have led to Russia finally returning children to Ukraine and prisoners being exchanged between the warring countries. If true, it's a move in the right direction, but there's still a lot to be done. I want to end our show with, I know we usually have one green shoot, but because mm. you're here, I tried to do two. Oh, thank you. <laughs> lovely. <laughs> so our first one is not as happy as it, as it can be, but it's still good news. And it is more on the global front. I want us to talk about President Cyril Ramaphosa's peace talks. He went to speak to Russia and Ukraine in June this year to kind of, you know, get peace negotiations going between the two countries. And according to Ramaphosa's latest comments before the UN General Assembly in New York, the African Peace Initiative is, quote, bearing fruit. And Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky also said similar. So it's some welcome good news, considering many of us viewed the peace mission as one that was destined to fail at the time. I don't know, Lizanne, if that's <laughs> I mean, they, they, you know, they can talk, but if you mm. look this week, the, both the Russians and the Ukrainians were increasing their offensives respectively, and people continued to die even as mm. those words were being spoken. You know, if you, if you follow what was happening in Ukraine, it, it, it was a, a deadly week. So I can't yet see any move to a cessation of hostilities, but, but it's good news that at least that peace initiative isn't dead in the water and that it continues as, as part of very many uh, peace initiatives. And hopefully by the end of this General Assembly gathering um, in New York at the UN, there'll be some movement towards a more palpable peace that, that impacts people on the ground. 
from coming up with new load-shedding proof recipes to spending more time with loved ones or simply reading that book that's been gathering dust for so many months. Load-shedding has managed to prove once again just how resilient South Africans can be. I wanted to end it with a story that Daily Maverick recently did, and it was written by yourself, Janet Hurd and Sarah Hevel, and it was a lovely piece titled How to Cut the ESCOM Cord. And it was really eye-opening as it showed how South Africans are coming up with their own ways to cope with load shedding. A lot of them said they're just leaving the country, which is nice for them, that I guess. <laughs> but um, what really stood out for you through reading all the reader comments and, and kind of the input that you got from your readers? You know, pure resilience, hey? finding the best in a bad situation, rebonding with families and loved ones, finding the art of reading again, and then obviously learning new ways to cook and get by in, in often very difficult circumstances. So once again, and you often find this, South Africans really are a resilient bunch. It's not only something we say about ourselves, but you can see it in action again and again and again. Mm-hmm. But can I send um, my green shoes? Yes, please. So Trevor Noah's back home. I don't know if you managed to go to any of his shows, but it is a magnificent performance. It's all a very South African show, not like the last time we, it was quite American. Mm. And it was filled with love for being back home. And his look at his look at South Africa from the homeless people directing traffic to how we've begun to identify which is our favorite load shedding slot. It's hilarious <laughs> in a laugh, laugh, cry, cry kind of way. And that's definitely my green shoot for the week. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, that's it for our show this week. Feriel, it was so great having you back with us. And I look forward like to chatting to you again. Yeah, I, I would chat. love to have you back again very soon. Definitely. Thank you, Lizanne. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Carte Blanche, the podcast available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms.